Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. How are you? Oh, what's that? Where are you? Oh, there you are. Yes, good morning to you. Would you like me to let everybody know who that was? Uh, <laughs> well, it is, uh, it is great to see all of you, um, regardless of your, your greeting volume. Uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, well, listen, I, we greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and welcome you um, to our service today. If you've not uh, worshipped with us before, if this is your first time in person, would you just allow us to show you some love and maybe put your hand up? There we go. See that hand? Love that. I'm pretty sure that there we go. There's another hand back there. So, um, uh, well, we are glad to have you, and I hope that um, on your way in, you were greeted by our team and you had an opportunity to receive a little gift that we have set aside for you. So if you didn't receive that, please make sure you get it on the way out. Um, we don't want you to uh, be jealous of all those who did get a nice, wonderful little bag that was custom made for them uh, with love and prayer. Amen. Well, uh, if you are just joining or maybe you've been following us online or maybe just kind of sporadically attending, uh, as you heard Pastor Ryan say, we are in a series entitled Going Against the Grain. And we are looking at the life of Elijah in the book of First Kings. And uh, this theme of going against the grain is capitalizing on the fact that there are times in our lives where just like Elijah, God is going to call us through faith to move in a direction that is in contrast to the current, that is in contrast to what's popular, that is in contrast or in a different direction to what the cultural mores may desire or dictate. And so I believe that every believer, if you're really following after Jesus, are going to find yourselves at some point needing to go against the grain. I would also say, and I say this with 100% confidence, that if you as a believer have never found yourself needing to go against the grain, you are likely living a life of high compromise. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you and I praise you for every opportunity to open your word and to gather with your people. We do this not just as an act of compliance and obedience because the Bible calls us to. We gather here, Lord God, because we love you and we desire to hear a word from you. Preaching is the process by which you have called your people to gather, Lord God, and to know your presence in a distinct way. Because we are gathered here in your name, O oh God, we believe, that in accordance with the promise of Scripture, that there is a specific way in which you allow your, your presence to be experienced that is distinct from your general omnipresence. We also pray, O oh God, that we would experience also what the Bible describes as the unique provision of your word, that it uh, was good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we would be uh, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Speak to our sin. Show us what we need to be corrected. Teach us, Lord God, beautiful truths about your Savior. Show us, Lord God, how to be more sanctified. And give us specific instructions, O oh God, to deal with the situations that we currently have in our hands. And then equip us, Lord God, more dutifully and powerfully to serve you within the context of the local church. We pray also, O oh God, that you would deliver some mail directly to our address in an envelope with our name on it, Lord God, in a way that it makes it undeniable that there has been a demonstration of your spirit as the Apostle Paul prayed for, that the people's faith would not rest in the words of men, but in this clear outlay of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, would you allow the gospel to be declared clearly and with profundity in a way that draws your people's hearts back to you and in that initial and first and most found fundamental work of our lives. 
Lord God, would you gather up our hearts, regardless of how scattered they are? Would you gather up our minds, regardless of what we might be going through, and take aim at them through your spirit and show us your unique supply, your daily bread for the things that we currently have, Lord God, on just the ledger of our life. Satisfy our appetites, satisfy our need, Lord God, as we walk through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18 in particular, and if you were here last week or maybe not, you'll know that Tyler led us through kind of probably one of the most popular and iconic stretches of Scripture concerning the life of Elijah. This is where Elijah um, stands toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal on the mountaintop with all of uh, the the top of Mount Carmel with all of Israel watching. As he rebuilt the altar, set up a sacrifice, taunted the God of Balaam, and asked the people to say, uh, um, to, to, to douse the offering with all kinds of water, and then God rained down fire from heaven, gobbled up or consumed in its entirety the offering, making it clear that he is the only one true and living God, and that indeed Elijah is his prophet. Immediately following that, something else happened where Elijah took the 450 prophets, in keeping with the scripture, when you find a false prophet, that he should be slain, and he took those 450 prophets and he slew them at the base of the mountain. And then this is where we pick up in our story today in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 40 and following. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. Now, if you also remember, a part of the story is that in, as a part, in punishment of Israel's commitment to idolatry, the Lord had spoken that there would be no rain for a stretch of three and a half years And that lack of rain or that drought produced a great famine, which was intended to turn the people's hearts back to him. Also, God spoke through Elijah in earlier texts and said that it would not rain again until Elijah showed up again. So here it is, Elijah has shown up, and now the rains are about to come. But follow the process. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again. And he did this seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And when the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, he gathered up his garments, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The distance from Mount Carmel to Jezreel is about 30 miles. Ahab told Jezebel, this is his wife, all that Elijah had done, and now how he had killed the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, 
so may the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, where, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel of the Lord touched him and said to him, um, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, and at his head was bread and on hot stones and a jar of water. Do not forget that image. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Don't forget that phrase. And he rose and he ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and nights to Horeb, which is the mount of God. Today I'd like to talk to you about the tale of two mountains. The tale of two mountains. The mountains in particular are Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb. The tale of two mountains. If you ever go to the Middle East, it is undeniable that mountains and hills play a critical part of that particular land's topography. The geography is just littered with mountains and hills. But it isn't just a part of the nation's topography. If you've been reading your Bible, you'll also know that mountains and hills are a critical part of Palestine or Israel's theology as well. Uh, just take for a moment uh, some of these popular mountain names if you've been reading your Old Testament as well as the book, uh, uh, as well as the Gospels. Uh, Mount Ararat, anybody know what that is? That is the place where Noah's Ark is said to have rested. That's right, Carrie, very good, very good. That's the place where Noah's ark is said to have rested after the floodwaters succeeded. Mount Gerizim, this is the perch where the Lord allowed, uh, where the, the children of Israel prior to entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua were promised and blessed the, uh, about what they were about to enter into. But Mount Gerizim is also the place where it is said that Jesus met with the Samaritan woman and told her, and, and told her about the water in the well, or they met around the water in the well and he told her about eternal water. The Mount of Olives, you know, this is a common place where the Lord Jesus Christ would do some of his teaching. Mount Nebo, uh, this is a place where Moses was allowed to see for the first time uh, the promised land. Mount Tabor, this is where Jesus transfigured himself and showed his glory to his disciples. Mount Moriah, this is the place where Abraham was called in, in obedience to sacrifice his son Isaac, and the Lord stayed his hand and gave him a ram in the bush. But some 150 times there's another mountain mentioned in Scripture, and that's Mount Zion, which geographically speaking, refers to, in some of those references, to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, other times, it refers specifically to the temple that Solomon built. In other moments, it refers to the people of Israel, and in other times, it refers to the eternal place of heaven and communion with God. But so as you can see, mountains and hills, the hill of Golgotha is where the Lord uh, Jesus Christ was slain. Uh, the Mount of Olives is where he went out and prayed and his sweat was like great drops of blood. Hills and mountains seem to be an inextricably uh, connected part of Israel's theology. And today we focus on Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb. Why? Something interesting happened if you, were read, if you were reading along or listening or looking at the screen with me, you'll notice that at Mount Carmel, Elijah operated in some of the highest and greatest and best faith of his life. 
I mean, it was so robust that it's even mentioned again to us as New Testament believers in James chapter 5 as fervent effectual prayer, bringing down rain. Mount Carmel is a place of great victory for Elijah, a great display of faith. But immediately after that, after he hears a, a frightening word from Jezebel, we also see the same man who was operating great faith fleeing and running to Mount Horeb in fear. I want to talk to you about the tale of two mountains simply because I want to know or I want to discover with you for my own faith and for yours, what do I do when my faith goes from being replete to being in retreat? Elijah's faith was absolutely replete. If you're taking the SAT soon, that simply means saturated, chock full of, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it in there, right? Much, right? Brimming, right? A lot of it. His faith was replete, lacking nothing. You got it? All right. <laughs> Thank you. That's quadruple click. I don't know how many clicks that is, but that's click. Um, but obviously, this same man who operated in some of the most robust uh, faith that we've ever seen in the Bible to face off with these uh, 450 prophets of Baal, at the word of one woman, turns and runs in fear. How does that happen? Not only how does it happen in the life of a man like Elijah, how does it happen in our lives as well? And I want to know not only how does it happen, I want to understand what do I and you need to do when my faith goes from being replete to being in absolute retreat? What do we do? Mount Carmel is a place where Elijah is taking charge, but Mount Horeb is a place where he needs to go to recharge. Mount Carmel is a place where he is out front taking the lead. Mount Horeb looks like a place where he is barely hanging on by a thread. Hills and mountains play a key part in the development of Israel's theology. So much so, listen to one of the most popular psalms in all of Scripture. Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I don't know if you caught that visual. But if you're standing there in Israel and you're looking up at all these hills that surround, if you were a person and you had a little theological scrapbook and you could go around and name all of the things that God has done on each one of those mountains and maybe say to yourself, wow, those mountains are awesome. These hills are wonderful. Maybe I should go to a hill and get some help. Because these hills and these mountains, if you've ever seen a mountain here, right, even here in the United States, they are massive, they are majestic, they are some of the largest and most, bigger than skyscrapers, right? I mean, they are some of the most majestic and imposing structures ever made by the hands of God. And that's exactly the point. The psalmist says, I look to the, I, I lift my eyes to the hills. Well, where does my help come from? My help doesn't come from a hill. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, or essentially, who made the hills, I will not let your foot, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep, which was the accusation that he made against the, the gods of Baal last week. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade upon your right hand. The sun shall not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going from your going out and your coming in from this time forth, from evermore. Mountains are play a key role in the shaping of my faith, but we must be reminded that it is God who gave me my faith. So what, what's one of the first things I do when my faith goes from being replete to going into retreat? I got to remember that mountains are crucial in shaping my faith. They are great places with incredible perspective. Every one of us has had our own Mount Carmel. 
You may have visited many times where God was answering prayer like crazy. Your business is going well. Your accounts are flourishing. You got into the program. You got accepted into this particular prestigious college. You got the promotion. Uh, you, you received healing. You, um, you, a, a certain conflict in your family was resolved without you having to step into it. Now, Mount Carmel is not a place of low conflict. It's a place of high faith. Notice that what happened in Elijah's life in the previous pages was filled with conflict, but God was with him, and he felt bold. He, he knew for a fact that he, the supernatural was with him. And so we've all had Mount Carmel moments where it seemed as if God was answering every prayer back to back to back, answering prayers even before we could finish saying them. We would get on our knees, and when we got up, we would get phone calls, and we would receive mail, or we would go to work and find out God had already answered prayer. How many people have been to Mount Carmel? It's a great place. But here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. You can't live on Mount Carmel, but you can learn on Mount Carmel. And what I mean by you can't live on Mount Carmel is that is not the reality of where we do all of our lives. And so we get regularly reminded that while mountains are crucial for shaping my faith, it is God who must remind us, say, I am the one who gave you your faith so that you don't become intoxicated by the high times in the Christian life and believe that that's the only glimpse of what real Christianity is about. You need to know this as well, that while I can't live on Mount Carmel, I must learn on it. Well, why do I want to learn on the mountain? I don't want to just let the winds of the, winds of the Holy Spirit blowing through my hair as I'm experiencing all the, grit, the greatness and the richness. What is it that I learn? Well, the truths that I encounter on the mountain must become my food in the valley. There are things that I come to know about God on the tops of mountains that I can't leave up there in the scrapbook of my theology and say, man, you remember when God used to? Remember when he did this? No, no. The food of, of the valley, the stuff that feeds me when things are at their worst must be the truths that I encountered on the mountaintop. You see, one of the great truths of God that I don't know if you missed it because I was reading too fast. I tried to not drink so much coffee, but the Bible says that Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and prayed seven times when there was nothing to see over the sea. He had already announced that rain was coming. Well, what was the premise of him announcing that rain was already on the way and that Ahab needed to go? The foreknowledge of God. And the foreknowledge of God in Elijah's heart trumped the forecast of man because he said when he looked out, he didn't see any clouds. And so he went back and kept praying. On what premise? Elijah didn't make the clouds come. It was God's foreknowledge that he trusted that they would come. And that's one of the great truths of the mountaintop experience is that the foreknowledge of God supersedes the forecast of man and anything we might see. Elijah was modeling for us the very kind of faith that Jesus talked about, people who walk by faith and not by sight. He wasn't just waiting on what he saw. He had already told Ahab rain was coming. He is modeling the kind of faith that Jesus talked about when he just had a little bit. He saw a tiny cloud like a man's hand, and he began to run because he knew that storms were coming. Jesus talked about the kind of faith like a mustard seed. Just a little bit can speak to these mountains, and it will get up and set itself in the sea. These are the mountaintop moments where we see the dots of Scripture connecting like crazy in our lives, and it is an exciting time. And I want to encourage you, whether you are on your Mount Carmel moment now or you used to be some years ago, do not forget the truths of the mountain because it must be your food in the valley. You see, those very truths obviously didn't become Elijah's food 
because he had just faced off with 450 false prophets, saw God move in a crazy way, but he got set off balance by the word of one woman. I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. That's a forecast. How can he work against the forecast of man on the basis of the foreknowledge of God on Mount Carmel, but not have that same foreknowledge of God working against the forecast of Jezebel? What happened? What happened to Elijah is I believe something, or what happened to Elijah and what happened to Israel is something that I also believe happens to us. And that is, we all have a little bit of the, the Jezebel situation happening in our life. But before we even get to the, the facets of Jezebel, I want to I bring something else to your attention. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, these are the words that when Jezebel heard all that, Ahab done, that Elijah had done, she made this promise she was going to kill him, and he didn't even hesitate. He immediately ran. The question that we should all be asking the Scripture is how can a man who is so full of faith now be so full of fear so quickly? I'll tell you how. James answers the question for us in a way that you may not imagine. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 16, listen to this very carefully. Confess your, trans, your trespasses, or some of your Bibles will say faults, one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours, prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, for the and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The scriptures want us to know, James wants us to know, that you too have access to the same kind of faith, or you can demonstrate the same kind of faith, because Elijah was a man with a nature like yours. But you got to know that if you got a nature like his, not only is his kind of faith possible in you, but also his kind of fear is possible in you and me. So what is it that causes these fears to live right next door to these faiths? And how is it that Jezebel was able to call out in this man such great fear when he had just operated in such great faith? Well, one reason is because no matter how well we run for God, we must run also run consistently to God, comma, and with his people. When Elijah complained before God or prayed that he would take his life, I don't know if you saw this late in or early in chapter 19. He says, Lord, I'm the only one that's left. In other words, it is the aloneness of Elijah that has become his liability. He doesn't have anyone to encourage him. He doesn't have anybody to call him up or to coach him up or to remind him of what God has done in his life. And I want to say to you that there are times when you are having your Mount Carmel, your mountaintop experience, and you feel like you are on top of the world, and you feel like you don't need anybody else but you and God and your cup of coffee and your Starbucks corner. And then you come away from that moment, and you cease to really build into fellowship the way you should with other believers. Because you believe that you and God can do it alone by yourselves. Elijah finds himself alone. And when we are alone, our faith quickly can become fatigued when we're bearing a great load, even when we're seeing great victory. Jezebel in this story represents, or she is an actual person, and quite an infamous character. So much so, not only does she show up in the book of 1 Kings as Ahab's wife, who encouraged incredibly, incredibly duplicitous behaviors in Israel. 
But she has such an infamous character profile that even Jesus mentions her in Revelation chapter 2 when he is giving the seven letters to the, the levers to the seven churches of Asia Minor to him. He says that at the church of Tharatara, symbolically, that there's somebody like Jezebel who is there teaching and seducing God's people away from truth and have them bowing down to idols and doing all kinds of deplorable things. So in other words, Jezebel's resume is so wretched that she has multi-generational, multi-testamental reach, and even Jesus uses her as an analogy of some of the things that can happen in the life of his people and in his church of things that are wrong. Well, exactly what is the picture or the portrait of Jezebel? I want you to know that Jezebel is either an influencer or a facet itself of the fallen nature that gives me greatest difficulty in trusting God regardless of everything he's done in the past. Have you ever felt in your life after your Mount Carmel moment, you are no longer in Mount Carmel, and now you're looking back, or Mount Carmel, and you're looking back, and you're saying, how in the world did I get here? It was just last month that I was throwing punches for God and knocking out all the opposition. It was just last week that I was experiencing victory and peace and answered prayer. How in the world did we get here? I'll tell you why. It's your Jezebel. It's a facet and an aspect of our nature that is yet to be fully fine-tuned to the grace of God. And let me tell you this, until you and I meet Jesus face-to-face, -face, there will always be a facet of our lives that needs to be fine-tuned. It doesn't need to be the same facet, but there's always going to be a facet of life that needs to be fine-tuned until you meet Jesus face-to-face -face and your sanctification is complete. This idea of fine-tuning is interesting. I was um, reflecting on when my daughter started playing the bass, and there were times when I was like, oh, I was so proud. But there were other moments when I was super annoyed because I would see her sitting there constantly tuning this thing, and I was like, why is it that it needs to be tuned all the time? Didn't you do that last week? Didn't you do it yesterday? Didn't you do it at this other moment? But I grew to realize that either after much playing or even passively after much sitting, that that instrument has to be continuously tuned in order to produce the right note. Our lives are so much more the same. As a matter of fact, one of our more contemporary psalmists have said this way, come thou fount of every blessing and tune my heart to your grace. We need to be fine-tuned on a regular basis like a great instrument of God. It's just every time there needs to be little adjustments because when we get relaxed, we're not producing the right sound. Or if we're too tight or anxious, we're not producing the right sound. We have to be fine-tuned by God's grace. Elijah needs fine-tuning. He has a nature just like ours. I will need fine-tuning. You will need fine-tuning. So then, I want you to look more carefully at who Jezebel is. Whether this is an actual person in your life or a person, whether it is a person in your life, a place in your life, or a thing in your life, Jezebel seems to bring out the worst in all of us when it comes to a demonstration of robust and righteous faith. As a matter of fact, take a look at the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 and following. Because Jezebel, I believe, is figuratively found here. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is exactly the role that, that Jezebel played in the life of Ahab. He married her and immediately amplified all of the debauchery that he was already doing. I mean, he was doing some bad things, but then the Bible highlights the fact that his marriage to her amplified so much more of what Israel should not be doing. There are people in our lives with whom we have entered into covenant of some way. 
Maybe it's a longtime friend or a confidant, someone who we've known all the while we've been growing up. Uh, maybe it's a, a person who we have given space in our life because of our personal history. Man, they was always there through ups and downs. I've been knowing him. That's my boy from kindergarten, from the third grade. Oh, that's my girl. We cross over together. That's my soror, whatever the case may be. There's all the, we play soccer together. There are all these people that we give longstanding history in our life, and we let their history become the same as fidelity, meaning because they've been always been around for a long time, what they're saying must be true because they know me most. That's a lie. That's a lie. These are the kinds of things that Jezebel would have us to believe. Jezebel's presence in our lives, whether this is a, a, a person or whatever, but there's people who we allow to speak because they've been around for a long time who advise, encourage, coach, and invoke things that lead us in a direction other than God. Or sometimes, like Ahab, a person who may have it in their heart to do something that doesn't honor God, but you're not in covenant with a person that'll call that stuff out. Just someone who will co-sign on it because they want to maintain your friendship. Man, is, is this a, am I preaching in the library? <laughs> it's okay. Jezebel is married to Ahab. She murders prophets. But there's something else that she did last week, and I don't know if you've heard it. Elijah said that these prophets were prophets that sat at her table. She made meals for them. She created a context in where voices that were other than God's voice felt comfortable hanging around, and she fed them. That's who your Jezebel is. It is a person or a place that fuels and feeds voices other than those of God. And because of the sheer volume of those voices, we feel comfortable following their lead. She not only made meals for them, but she also manipulated Ahab to commit murder in later texts. She also calls all of the prophets to be killed, so she's trying to cut off the voice of God. She's in competition with the voice of God in the lives of, of God's people in Israel. She misled the church of Thyatira figuratively, as Jesus would say. But 2 Corinthians 7, 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with dark? What accord uh, has Christ with Bilal? Or what part does a believer have with the unbeliever? Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And so again and again, Paul is painting this picture that, the pre that is a contaminating presence that is allowed to have long-standing stay in our lives will eventually lead us off track. And so what then is the answer to what I should do when I find my faith going from being replete to somehow being in retreat? Well, I believe that we would need to revisit the same passage we just read earlier. Confess, this is James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults or trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. I, noticed, I, I find it interesting that as a precursor to showing us what great faith looks like, we see what great fellowship looks like. Confessing our faults one to another. This word confess means to, to agree, right? To, I, I need to come into, when I confess my sins to God, I'm coming into agreement with God on what my sin is and who Christ is, and that, resu and that repentance results in my salvation. When I, when I confess my faults and my trespasses to one another, it says to pray for one another that we might be healed. There is something that I need that comes from the unique relationships of confessing my faults to one another. So I'm just not doing life and faith alone. So there's three things that I believe we need to do when my faith goes from being replete to somehow being in retreat. Number one, I need to agree with God on who and what the Jezebel is in my life. Let me give you some descriptor. Your Jezebel is anything and anyone or any place 
that regularly amplifies, solicits sales and cosigns, the unholy, the unhealthy, and the unhelpful. They may not start out with the overt unholy because they know that you are a believer and would never encourage or coach you into something totally unholy because they recognize that you might cut off the friendship. But they may encourage some things that are unhealthy and that are also unhelpful in your life. They are not moving you forward in your relationship with the Lord. Or if you're contemplating those kind of things, they will co-sign on it and say, well, you just need to do what makes you feel best in this moment. That's not the right kind of advice. You need to agree with God on who the Jezebel is in your life, the un- encouraging, the unholy, the unhealthy, and the unhelpful influences. And here's this. The scriptures say that anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ should be, pulled, should be pulled down, not negotiated with, not worked around. And I believe that so oftentimes there are those who are like Jezebel in our lives, who, are, who, who Satan would use them. They might be a good childhood friend, and I know you feel insulted by the way that I'm speaking about them. Or they may be a, a trusted confidant or a mentor that you've gotten professionally or some other person in your life who, who seem to be well-intentioned. But if, if they're not giving you healthy, holy, and helpful advice and they're co-signing on corruption in your life, it will eventually deteriorate your faith. And so the Bible says, the Bible says that rather than trying to work around them in our lives to give them continued space, we need to pull that down and bring it into subjection. We need to be regularly witnessing these relationships rather than just shrugging our shoulders and going whatever when that person gives us advice that does not coincide with the will of God. Number two. Another confession, we need to agree with God and give access to other healthy believers to point out her influence in my life. So if I'm gonna, I wanna agree with God and ask God to show me who the Jezebels are in my life, and then I want to come into agreement with other healthy believers, not hellish and fleshly believers, but other healthy believers who I know don't mind wrinkling my emotions and telling me, bro, Ma'am, sir, girl, you're off base on this one. They don't mind calling us out to point out the unredeemed influence in our life. Number three, I need you to turn to the pages of Scripture to enjoy this one. In verses 4 through 8 in 1 Kings chapter 19, the Bible says, But he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. And this is that moment where Elijah is laying down and asks the Lord to take his life. He is at a very low point. And then an angel touches him and he says, hey, there's some cake bread on hot stones and a jar of water. And he he took it and he ate and drank. And that same angel revisited him and said, eat and drink again because the journey is too much for you. The third thing we need to do is that we need to agree with God and we need to aggressively get back to the basics of depending on the bread of life. We need to agree with God and aggressively get back to depending on the bread of life as our source. So often when we are having a low season in life, we are looking for a new revelation or we're looking for some kind of new disclosure. No, what you need to do is shorten the distance between the original word that God spoke, which was in his gospel. Why is this important and is it biblical? Notice that where Elijah is going is back to Horeb. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a place where God originally met with Moses and said, I want you to deliver my people. I am come down and I see their issues. It was at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai where God gave the the Ten Commandments and says, these are the tenets. This is what it looks like for me to be your God and for you all to be my people. 
Getting back to basics. This is where Elijah is headed. He's got to get back there. But on his way back there, I want you to notice that it says that he's ready to die. When we come to the end of ourselves, then God says, I see you're now ready to eat what I can provide, and that is the bread of life. This is the picture of the gospel right here in the pages of 1 Kings. When I finally die to myself, God says, now you're ready for me to be your supply. And I'll bring the bread of life that will sustain you for this wilderness journey that you have. We need to get back to the truths of the gospel. I know that they seem basic and passe. But if the gospel seems basic and passe, that probably means you don't know it well enough. Trust me, you don't need new and thicker and meatier words than the gospel. Let me explain why. Every single miracle of the New Testament and of the Old Testament pales in comparison to the one of Jesus being raised from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the devil. Every single fight and battle and war you've ever seen won in the pages of Scripture. Pick the biggest battles, starting from the, 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 the people of God crossing the Red Sea and the death of the Egyptian army, all the way up to the falling of the walls of Jericho. Come forward. Pick your favorite battle. Every single battle that has ever been won is nothing in comparison to the battle that Christ won when he was raised from the dead over sin, death, and the devil. So you notice that you don't need another word. I don't know where you would get it from. Maybe you would go to some of these other stories that are mere echoes of the gospel. But we need to become duly convinced in seasons of our lives where we feel like we have a deficit in faith. Lord, let me run back to this other mountain. Let me run back to the place where you originally spoke and told me what it was like to be yours and for, for you to be mine and for me to be yours. That's what Jesus did. At the cross, the Bible tells us, well, in book of John, prior to the cross, the Bible says that as Jesus Christ would come, he would give all those that would believe in him the right to become sons and daughters of God. That was per his work on the cross. So the place where God is officially introducing himself and saying, I want to be yours and for you to be mine, it's happening at the cross. So we need to aggressively get back to the basics of depending on the bread of life, who is Jesus uniquely supplied by God. He is to be our hope and strength in our deepest and in our lowest moments. And God wants us to enjoy mountain experiences, but he doesn't want us to forget the original mountain before we get to all of these other mountains because they are merely echoes of what God ultimately wants to do in our lives. So I don't know where you are, if your faith is replete or if your faith is in retreat. But no matter where you are, I hope that you have the heart to fully identify your Jezebels, to fully identify those things or those places. It may be a people, place, or a thing that is encouraging, endorsing, or invoking unfaithfulness or unfaithful beliefs, crowding out the truth of God in your life. Who is it that is speaking? What is it that is speaking? What is it that is taking up so much space in your heart and mind that you can't remember the simple truth that you learned on the mountain, which is that the foreknowledge of God is greater than the forecast of man. Do you know that Jesus Christ was led to the cross by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God according to uh, the book of Acts found in chapter 2? It's the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Them that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You are the foreknown of God. And so the forecast of what other person, any other person would project for your life pales in comparison. It is nothing compared to the foreknowledge of God for your life. That's where we want our faith to rest. That's where we need our faith to be built up. We don't move on from what Jesus did at that mountain. 
we move with those truths. Remember what I said, the truth that you learn on the mountain has to become your food in the valley. And so if you're famished in the valley, did you really eat what God told you the last time you had a great mountaintop experience? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you and I praise you this morning for walking us through your word, opening our eyes and allowing us to see, Lord God, uh, just glimpses of the truth. We know that what we see here is just kind of looking dimly through a foggy mirror what we'll ultimately see when we are face to face with Christ. But Lord God, you've shown it to us nonetheless that each of our hearts would be drawn more closely to you. I pray for that sister, that brother, for that man, that woman, that person out here today whose faith is replete. They are loving life right now and seeing you light up, Lord God, the horizon on their behalf, and they are enjoying a great season of faith. Lord God, would you help them to codify that faithfulness that they're seeing from you and put it in a little folder that they could use as their food and their reference point, Lord God, when low seasons come. And I pray for the person, Lord God, who is already in their lowest season, feeling deeply beat down and abused, hoping that some preacher, pastor, or favorite author will publish a book or do a podcast that would raise them up out of their current low space. I pray that person, Lord God, would just run to the gospel and deepen their appreciation for that initial work on their behalf. Lord God, I pray for the person who hears some of what I'm saying, but the rest of it sounds like a foreign language, but they know for a fact that they need a relationship with God and they do not know you. I pray that that person, oh God, would, would hear that you came down from heaven and sent your son to die on a cross on their behalf, on their personal behalf, to shoulder the weight of your wrath for their sins so that they wouldn't have to die for their own sins. And then was raised on the third day by your power, Lord God, and that physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is symbolic of his defeat. Not symbolic, it is actual and factual defeat over sin, death, and the devil, the three great things that strike fear in the hearts of every single man, woman, and child. Lord God, and that you promise to give uh, as beneficiaries to all those who place faith in you, you promise to give them, Lord God, your spirit. The same spirit that raised you from the dead would reside in them, giving them ongoing victory and newness of life and would spread up in them, Lord God, like a wellspring of water. I pray, oh God, for that person that they would move just a little step closer. I pray, oh God, that for the unbeliever in the room today that you would move them with, with curiosity about the Christ. How can these things be so as Nicodemus would say, oh God, would you move your people? As I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As the band is playing and leading us in worship, man, if you're here and you desire prayer, just around anything that I prayed or maybe, uh, maybe nothing I said resonated with you, but you know you need prayer. Um, our elders, uh, if you're in the room, and our prayer team, uh, prayer team, if you are there, these folks are standing and putting their hand up. Our prayer team are kind of going to their spaces. Would you please go and spend some time with them? Amen. Let's worship them.